Hi, this is Sav. This is Katie. And this is Michael from The Accidentals. And you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast with Jay Gilbert and Michael Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Variety, inside the multi-billion dollar battle royale over music streaming royalties. From Bob Left Sets, the playlist fallacy. And from Austin Staubus, the case against the pre-save on Spotify and Apple Music. Mm-hmm. Hmm, we got a lot to talk about, Jay. <laughs> a lot of great stories, a lot of interesting stuff that we will be covering today. So relax, everybody, because this is the Your Morning Coffee Podcast, and here we go. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. So nice to see you on what is a ah, Saturday for us, for crying out loud. It's yeah. uh, We are on episode 103. I mean, we are almost about to hit our um, our two-year mark. We, I mean, in fact, I was going to look it yeah. up and see. Our two-year anniversary. Our two-year anniversary, yeah. And it's been... Can you believe it? it it's, it's gone so <laughs> it's fast. It's gone by so fast. And so yeah. fast. And, and you know, we, we, you think about it, we started it during the pandemic, you know? So it was... Yeah. Uh, we, our original idea, I think, was to try to do it in person, and then, of course, we couldn't do yeah. it in person when we started, and and that has yeah. presented a, a couple of challenges, just kind of figuring out the best way of, of equipment, the technology of doing it, how to do yes, it, and how to hear each other and monitor and record our, on our own side, our own our own uh, our own vocal parts, and so it's just been it's been so fun, and yet here we are, boom, yeah. at one oh three and. Episode 103, and um, what a beautiful song, uh, oh, Mangrove. Uh, beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. I just, 
I had my uh, my friend and photography partner Chris Schmidt over uh, yesterday, and we were listening to it, and we both got goosebumps. We had it up pretty loud, and uh, when that orchestra kicks oh, in, beautiful. Which, by the way, if you if you don't know, the Accidentals have a brand new album that dropped last Friday um, with the Kaboom Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And uh, holy cow, it's uh, it's really and the beautiful. arrangement is gorgeous. I mean, the playing is superb. The recording is great. It's the whole thing is it's it's lovely. Yeah, and you've heard of the Kaboom I Orchestra, have, right? Yeah, I've seen them on. They've I, well, I didn't know their name. I, you know, I've, I've seen them with different artists. And is it a youth orchestra yeah. or like a community orchestra? Yes, yeah, it's a youth orchestra, right? Yeah, it's a youth orchestra, and it's conducted by a, the I can't remember the woman's name who, who was the. Oh, now you're gonna put me on the spot. Her name is Liza, and I forgot her last name. I have to look it up. Um, <laughs> we'll, sorry, we'll, sorry, we'll Liza. Go with Liza. Darn it! <laughs> I think I saw. Let's go back and edit that. That's right. Just slide <laughs> in her, her official name. Um, uh, but they've worked with you I know. I think we I talked think. about. Sticks and Tommy mm-hmm. Shaw, yeah, and among others, but they're they're phenomenal. And uh, this this album is just absolutely lush and gorgeous, and uh, it's really sort of a, a best of in some regards. But what I love about it is they've taken some of these songs that you, if you're an Accidentals fan, you you know a lot of these songs that you hear from their set. But there's some like the song "Us" or "Epitaphs" or. Um, you know, uh, Lady of the Lake, ones that you may not hear a lot, but that really come to life Mm -hmm. um, with this orchestra. So uh, thanks to uh, Sav and Katie and Michael for that cool intro. And check out uh, the Accidentals Reimagined with the uh, Kaboom Orchestra. Talented group. And boy, what a neat collaboration that is indeed. Yeah. Uh, And so, you know, by the way, uh, when when we do this show, Jay, here at episode 103, we, we mm-hmm. have help, right? We really have help. And without our lovely sponsors, we could not put the show on. So we, we always have to mention that because we are so lucky to have them. It's, it's folks that we've worked with in the past before we even That's did right. a podcast. So I do want to mention yeah. that your, the Your Morning Coffee podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle, built by musicians for musicians. Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in. Hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters. And not only that, it's also social media integrations and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go over to Banzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days and use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, and get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's Banzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. We are also sponsored by our good friends over at HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music business, all of those trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It's edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. And speaking of Bands in Town, over 65 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist services platform connecting over 550,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. So thank you so much to Bands in Town, Hypebot, and of course, 
Banzoogle. Yes, exactly. And by the way, don't forget to subscribe to us if you can, wherever you uh, get your podcast. We would certainly appreciate it, Jay and I. And I think we'd also appreciate it if you just mentioned to one of your friends about the podcast. Yeah. You know, I think that's a great idea. And, and I've, I stole that idea from uh, Will Page mm-hmm. um, from his Bubble Trouble podcast. I heard him say this. And I thought, you know, that is such a great idea. And uh, I'll just kind of reiterate what Mike just said. And that is just, if you could just tell one person, uh, do us a favor, you know, uh, just tell one person about our our little podcast, we would greatly appreciate it. We certainly would. We certainly would. And boy, you know, we were, as as we always do, we've had basically another show that we didn't record where we were just chatting (laughs) for the last hour. For like an hour. Exactly. Um, (laughs) And now now that I've finished uh, Stranger Things... Uh, now that I've finished The Old Man, I apparently have to really watch the Shania Twain documentary. Oh, yeah. Um, that documentary. Well, you know, if you listen to the show, you know that Mike and I are big fans of music documentaries. And there is a, uh, a new documentary on Netflix um, about Shania Twain. It's called Not Just a Girl. And it is just wonderfully done. And uh, I won't spoil it because there's so many ups and downs in that. But she is just so driven and so talented. And um, I was fortunate to know a little bit about, you know, how the sausage was made over there because a friend of mine was her guitar player mm. uh, for, for a couple of tours. And uh, she is like those artists that we talk about, you know, maybe it's uh, Lady Gaga or Madonna or some of those artists that just... They work hard. You know, we always say the harder I work, the luckier yeah, I yeah. get. Well, she got really lucky because she worked really, really hard. And, you know, her collaborations with you know, Mutt Lang, uh, some of the biggest records uh, by females and in country ever. Just a fantastic documentary. Not just a girl. Uh, it's now on Netflix. Okay, I got to check that out. And, and I don't know if you saw it. We, we did, actually we didn't talk. We did not talk about this in the first hour where we were just talking. Um, if you go over to YouTube, there's some footage of Joni Mitchell performing for the first time in ages, especially and after her her health issues uh, at the Newport Folk Festival with Brandy Carlisle. Yes. And it is, mm-hmm. I mean, it's moving, absolutely beautiful. And I, and I think it was just shot by, it's not a professional, it was something shot by a fan in the audience, but it sounds great. And oh my goodness, if there's, there won't be a dry eye after you watch that. It's iconic. Unbelievable. Yeah. For, without a doubt. Yeah. For sure. By the way, the guy that I get to chat with every week, yes, every week, before and after the record button is hit, is none other than Jay Gilbert. <laughs> he is my longtime friend and a co-founder of the music marketing and strategy company Label Logic. He's the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music Groups, and Fox Home Entertainment, and a groovy dude all around, a dapper chap. Uh. Thank you so much. And uh, Mike Etchart is longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups, one of my favorite people on the planet. And he's also um, going to tell me a little bit about that SST book we've been <laughs> oh, talking about. So you actually, you, you read that, I right? read it, yeah. It's it? called Corporate Rock tell Sucks. Us. Now, you've got 
you've got experience there. Oh, so. yeah, that was my first gig. And uh, it's called Corporate Rock, Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST Records. <laughs> it was written by Jim Ruland or Roland. I'm not exactly, sorry, Jim, I don't okay. know the pronunciation of your last name. I'm not sure. of. But it's really, it's about, and if you don't know the label, it was founded by Greg Ginn, who was the guitar player in Black Flag. And they were with sure. the preeminent you know, basically punk rock, West Coast punk rock label. And they had a, an enormous catalog. And this fills in a lot of blanks, you know, because I got in there, it it, it, it went through different phases of, of people working there and kind of direction and, and output. And uh, boy, it really is a great book. So highly recommended. Corporate Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST Records. It's I've got it in my stack. I haven't read it yet. Um, I'm probably going to move it closer to the top after hearing your your review and and I'm always interested to hear what someone thinks that was on the inside because you're either going to have one of two responses one is nope that's not right that's not accurate I was there and we both had that you know I've I've read books Mm -hmm. you know about people who have written about the music industry and they talk about things where I was in the room and that's not what happened. Right. But then there are things like Steve Knopper has this amazing book called Appetite for Self-Destruction. Oh, and it's great just book. one of my all-time favorite music industry books. And he talks about a couple of uh, things when we got to the technology side and you and I were in the room mm-hmm. working at Universal, working for ECAT or E-Labs or whatever division it was at the time. And they talk about people that you and I were at the table with, and it's accurate. And, you know, when you're on the inside, you know that. So I I wanted to hear from you to see if it it was good. It was really good. And, you know, being working, it was, for me, it was a great learning experience because uh, it was my first gig and it was a, a super successful independent label. And I did sales and distribution. So I worked with all the indie distributors, both here in the States and internationally. And, you know, it was, you forget about the volatility and SST Records, as is as is laid out in the book, um, a, a, a number of different uh, independent distributors, including uh, Green World and Gem and Important Records. Oh, I'd forgotten about them. I was an import buyer at Tower Records. Oh, and I course. remember all those people. Yeah. Even those, though, even though a lot of this stuff was domestic, it went through kind of international mm-hmm. distributors. Mm-hmm. Who primarily, you know, those ones you mentioned, yes. um, did a lot of imports. Yes, uh, but of course, and and they all those three mentioned Green World, uh, Gem, and Import all went out of business and all left the indie labels holding the bag for money. And so when I was Ooh. at SST, I, the number I heard at the time was about four hundred thousand dollars that they got screwed on. And Holy when cow. Important went out, and I think it was more or was a different amount for Gem and Green World was before I got there. But um, you know, the it was it's tough business being an independent label. And when things like that happen, and I as I recall, this was really during the transition between vinyl to CDs. And at, when I was at SST, we had a bunch. We were waiting for a, a, a shipment. We we had to pay for it because the, the shipment had been ordered and had been manufactured of CDs, and they was sitting on the dock. And then one of those indies went out of business. Those those distributors, and we didn't have the money. So it's it's, it's this 
double-edged sword. We didn't. We were owed right. the money. We need to pay the money to the CD manufacturers, which we didn't have all of a sudden. Therefore, we couldn't get the money to keep. <sighs> oh, it was just really so disappointing. Yeah, exactly. But you know that was that's that was the rough and tumble world of of indie labels. But I learned a ton, and without that job, I never would have progressed further. And you know, when you look at the bands like Dinosaur Jr. and the Meat Puppets and Soundgarden and all these bands that were on SST that went on to major labels, yeah, oh yeah, uh, you know, and so it was it was a pretty gr- pretty good batting record. They had a, over yeah, there. they did absolutely. So highly recommended. Definitely check it out. Um, yeah, all fun right. fun stuff. Well, Jay, then it's time to get into the stories because uh, you know these yeah. these things we have covered quite a bit over the last call it six months um, are yeah. still. Uh, there's lots of teeth gnashing, shall we say. Yes, and and it's evolving, yes. right? So before we jump into our first story, which is from Variety, and as you and I have talked about uh, many times, Variety is just killing it yes. when it comes to their coverage of the music business. It Absolutely. is just world-class, just amazing stuff. Uh, this piece is written by Jem Oswad, um, and the headline is Inside the Multi-Billion Dollar Battle Royale Over Music Streaming Royalties. But before we get into it, let's just review some of these things because they've changed and evolved since the last uh, few times that we've talked about it. So I'm going to kick this off just so everybody knows... Um, we're talking about things like the Copyright Royalty Board, mm-hmm. and you'll hear us say CRB. That's the Copyright Royalty Board. Yes. So uh, the CRB is a two-year process, like every five years. Um, but the two-year process, it sets the rates for a five-year period um, for DSPs, you know, like Spotify and Apple Music, what they pay songwriters, you know, typically via publishers, right? Mm-hmm. So this CRB3, uh, sometimes it's referred to as Phono Records 3. So CRB3 was set at 15.1%, um, and that was supposed to run 2018 through 2022. Uh, but if you follow this show, you know that, you know, we talk about how in 2019, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Pandora, they appealed that rate um, and so it wasn't implemented, right? Yes. Um, and and that would have raised the mechanical streaming rate, you know, from 10.5 to 15.1% over the years 2018 through 2022. So due to, because they were appealing it, you know, copyright owners um, just, they re- received a lower rate while this, you know, uh, negotiation was happening. Exactly. So the retroactive increase for American songwriters is supposed to be paid within six months of the verdict being finalized. But the streaming giants have asked for that time period to be extended. So CRB4, or again, Phono Records 4, is in progress, uh, which is covers the years 2023 through 2027. A negotiation is expected to begin in September. So the NMPA, which is the National Music Publishers Association, wants DSPs to pay more. And not surprising, Jay, I know this is going to knock you over with a feather. The DSPs want to pay less. You take that I back. I swear to God, that's what so it says here. You're gonna, as we cover this story, um, you're going to hear about the NMPA. Again, that's the National Music Publishers Association. Mm-hmm. It's very key here. So at this CRB4 trial... Uh, the NSAI and the NMPA, they're both asking for a fourth revenue stream, a per stream payment. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're seeking of the greater of either, you know, 20% of revenue, uh, 40% of total content cost, which we talked about last week, that TCC total content cost, 
or a dollar fifty per month per subscriber, uh, and a zero point zero zero one five per stream. I think that's fifteen ten thousandths of a penny. Is that that's yeah. right? <laughs> Going back to my high school math. Yes. I Googled yeah. it. <laughs> okay, that's right. Uh, so the NMPA uh, claims DSPs are currently proposing the lowest rates ever. They are proposing dropping songwriter percentage from 15.1% to 10% via NMPA proposing moving up to 20% versus NMPA proposing moving up to 20%. So where should the increased payment to songwriters come from? The NMPA mm. claims DSPs can pay more versus rights holders and labels. How do we pay songwriters more? Well, about 30% the DSPs currently keep. About 55% of the revenue paid out to rights holders, which is about 15% to songwriters via CRB3. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, yes. yeah, publishing songwriter share split. goes to the songwriter, 20% goes to the publisher, typically. That's not not always, but that's typically. And labels and DSPs operate in a free market. Publishing songwriter rate is set by a third party and is compulsory. So that's important to know as well. That's that CRB, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So we'll we'll dig into this, but the the last point I want to make is that it's not just about the rate uh, that's uh, paid out. It's a bigger picture. You have to look at the overall value of the song to a DSP like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, etc. DSPs gain stock value that songwriters really don't participate in, um, and they also gain value in other ways. You know, Amazon has Prime memberships. Spotify is doubling down on uh, podcasts and merch sales via Shopify. And up until last week, um, they were promoting the car thing. You might have seen that uh, car thing was discontinued last week. And then Apple, you know, they'll uh, get revenue from, you know, their product ecosystem, you know, devices, Apple Fitness Plus, et cetera. So that's kind of, a, you know, uh, teeing this thing up. So when we talk about the CRB in this piece, because it's really, really important, and it features... Um, some quotes from our friend Chris Castle, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's getting a little contentious in some parts. Yes, a little. But uh, I'll, I'll let you kick it off. Right. But, you know, but I do want to say before we start this, and I've, we've mentioned this before, and this, you know, when we talk about Spotify, when we talk about Apple, Amazon, Google, tech companies, and as we mentioned at our shared career in the tech space at Universal Music, we would have this parade of people coming in, of tech companies wanting to do business with us, wanting to have these these, sure. these products, these projects that involve music, that they needed music, and they would just continually grind us and and you know want to take the bulk of the profits they wanted to build businesses on the backs of our at the time our music on the universal music group catalog and they right. were they were so tone deaf you know it was just like it, it was it was you could just you could set your watch to it. You knew what was going to happen in these meetings. They would yeah. come in. They had this great idea for music, something online, some sort of to build their business. To build their business, and and then when negotiations started, they were just horrified that we were asking for the bulk of the profit because hey, dude, right. the, or dudes or 
chicks, whatever. This is like, this, <laughs> this is our, this is, this is our lifeblood. And you, there's a value there's to an it. Enormous I value think, to is what it. you're saying. Yes. And of course there is. I do think that that's changed. I, I love that the music industry is working with companies like Peloton, mm-hmm. for example, and they're, they're a top 10 account Absolutely. for most of the uh, majors. And uh, I don't think that could have happened, um, back in our day because of the fact that you just mentioned they were looking to build a business on the back of the music industry and not really valuing uh, the music for that. And I think that today we're valuing it more than ever, although we have a long way to go. Yes, but it's just the, the, the sort of galling behavior on them to, to you know argue about the songwriters or to push back so hard. It's just like, ugh, really? But anyway, so yes. And I do want to mention also yeah. Jim Oswald, who, I mean, he's been around forever, the writer of this piece. Great writer, and I think he worked at labels as well. He was over at Caroline, maybe, or one of the one of the labels back in the day. So it's fun when you recognize the names on the masthead of, of who are writing the articles. So oh yeah, yeah. So as we yeah. jump into it, yeah, you know, as as <laughs> the first line is so great. It's hard to think of a more brain deadening topic than the U.S. <laughs> copyright royalty board's proceedings over the rates for music streaming, and the fact that we just had to review all of that stuff is really an yeah. exclamation point on the brain deadening. You know, it's yeah. it's it's very complex, and you know, as as you and I have talked about over the years, you know, back in our days at the labels, this was stuff you know we didn't really know or know much about or pay attention to, to be honest. Of course, it's pre-streaming, right. but just you know, all of the minutia about copyright rates and things like that, it was just it wasn't something right. that you you dealt with in a day in day out world. Right, and let me point out that we're not the smartest guys in the room. We may be the most curious. Mm-hmm. And certainly good looking. I'll give you that. But um, the uh, um, we've stood on the shoulders of giants because we get to speak to very smart people like Shirley Halperin and like uh, Chris Castle, you know, who's quoted in this uh, piece. And, you know, we can read his uh, his website, Music Technology Policy, and we put those stories in your morning coffee regularly. But that's where we learned about yes. it. Um I didn't know about these things when I was working for Universal. Like you said, it wasn't really part of my day-to-day. It wasn't on my radar. But now I'm really curious about it, and it's it's mainstream now. You'll, totally. you'll read about it in Variety, Rolling Stone, not just in industry trades you know, like uh, Billboard or uh, your morning coffee to some degree. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it can be dense. It can be difficult. But I think by picking it apart... And, you know, that little intro that we did is that's not comprehensive. That's just kind of the high level view of this. There's if you talk to Chris Castle, trust me, there's a lot more to this. <laughs> that's right. But it's but even I have to kind of review it again when we whenever we talk about it, it's like, OK, wait a minute. Where are we? Yeah, because it just it's 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 dense. Stuff. And it's evolving. And it's evolving. Right. I mean, I sent you some notes because um, you and I kind of keep this kind of running list of what's going on with this. And it's evolved and changed so much just in the last few months that we had to revise that for this uh, episode today. Exactly. But as it says in the article, it says, caught in the middle are songwriters. And that's what's heartbreaking, to be honest, who are counterintuitively at the bottom of the totem pole in the streaming economy. And you know what? That true words have never been spoken. And as the article says, the two sides in this deeply dysfunctional symbiotic relationship, in the words of one executive, have developed, he devolved into squabbling partisan camps that are nevertheless completely dependent upon each other. Every deal point with the tech sector is contentious, one top music executive says but this one's gotten so bitter 
I mean, can't we get along? And that's yeah. that's really so true, and it's tragic. Yeah, you know, you've got uh, two different worlds colliding here with two different um, outcomes that they want. You know, on the music side, you've got your publishing companies, you know, and those are dominated by the three majors, Sony, Universal, and Warner. You know, and on the streaming side, you've got Amazon Music, YouTube, which is owned by Google, Alphabet, uh, Pandora, owned by SiriusXM slash Liberty Media, you know, and then of course the global market leader, um, Spotify. Now you'll notice I didn't mention Apple Music. They're of course the world's second largest um, service, DSP, and they stayed out of the last round uh, of this fight, um, letting the other companies kind of take the bullets, <laughs> as yes. one top executive puts it. Um, but sources confirm uh, to Variety anyway that it's you know they're on board for the next round. CRB4. Yes, exactly. And I wonder what their stand and their stance will be on that. Um, we will find out. We will absolutely find yes, sir. out. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of, that sort of sets the table really in, in kind of what we're talking about. It's, it's, you know, and then of course this, a lot of this stuff, when you, what you talk about is, you know, this, this is a model, as they say, it was jerry rigged from the CD and vinyl era. Where streaming, you know, and streaming royalties are divided two ways. Seven, as we talked about, seventy-five to eighty percent typically split between the performing artist and usually a label, while about twenty to twenty-five percent go to publishing. Um, and this uneven division of the revenue was originally calculated to account for the expenses that labels incurred in the manufacture and distribution of, of course, vinyl, CD and mm -hmm. tapes that basically the physical product and they say, say sure. that lopsided split may or may not still make sense in the streaming age depending on whom you ask and this of course is really really interesting concept as well which is you know yeah. what is the value now of a record label and when when what do record labels do are they are they are they doing enough for that considerable split and right and some would argue that they're still incurring costs mm -hmm. of, you know, whether it's servers or people to, you know, make sure that all of this music and metadata is, you know, uploaded correctly and, you know, just the infrastructure surrounding that and that they're still marketing, they're still PR, they're still sync, they're still touring support. There's all sorts of things uh, where labels add value. But I think the argument here is that wait a second, we've had these costs because we had CDs, vinyl, cassettes, etc. We don't have those anymore. So certainly that ecosystem uh, needs to be uh, re-looked at. Well, and I think <clears throat> you and I have talked about this a little bit. And I think to be, I think anybody observing uh, the, the way marketing of music has happened now is I think labels in general have more releases and less um, less intensive marketing, and I'm seeing this in the book industry as well in, in publishing, which is they, they tend to release lots of things and they wait for something to catch. And then they and then they spend the money. Pour gasoline on that That's fire. That's exactly right. And so I think um, they're not doing as much marketing as, as, as they were doing in our era up front. You know, typically in those days, for the most part, most records would get a shot. They would do a fair amount of marketing and, and, and work to, to get that thing out. I'm seeing less of that now. I think that's just, I don't know if you're, you agree with me on that. You're, you're working with artists much closely, more closely than I am. But Well, I think that there's, there's a couple of schools of thought there. One is we've talked about there, there always will be strong labels that are doing really, really great work. You know, um, Atlantic, 
Interscope, mm-hmm. New West, Nonesuch. Uh, the list goes on and on and yes. on. Um, and I'm not bashing labels, but there are some where folks are getting lazy and they're looking for that uh, TikTok breakout. Um, so they've, they're standing on the shoulders of giants. They can uh, release something that already has demand in the marketplace. And as we grew up in the industry, we had artist development, mm-hmm. meaning that there was no demand in the marketplace and you would do those things that we would do, get them out on the road as a support act to try to build it up. Uh, hopefully work some of their songs at radio, have a good publicist and a good narrative that they could talk about. Um, there were all sorts of things. I just think that it's such a different world now. Um, I'm not one of those people that has abandoned the album, although I know that today it's a track-based economy. Mm -hmm. The other thing that you touched on is, you know, look, the the industry has always had a low success rate. Right now, I believe the last figure I read was like a 93% failure rate if you're just looking at ROI, you know, the return on investment. And that's why it comes back to what you said. The record industry has always done that where they would sign, I'll make up around number 10 artists and they, they work and they put it out there and see what kind of gets radio airplay, what kind of takes off. And then they double down on those ones Mm -hmm. and make them the priorities. um, And that's those two that are successful pay for the eight that weren't. Right. Exactly. But you, so you have the labels claiming that they're still, still doing a lot for their, for their cut, which is not insignificant. Mm -hmm. Then on the other side of the coin, you have executives at streaming services argue that it is very much in the major's interest to maintain that system because labels can make deductions on those expenses and note that the system is riddled with conflicts because the world's three major music groups own the three largest labels and the three largest publishers. Also, publishers take a significantly lower percentage of streaming royalties, about 25%, according to the NMPA, than labels do for most artists. And, of course, what really complicates the situation further is that labels' streaming royalties are determined by free market negotiations between the music companies and streamers, but while publishing is determined by the government via the Copyright Royalty Board panel. So it's an unbalanced system that has no real parallel anywhere else in the world, as one music exec calls it, absurd, archaic, and unnecessary. But it's not likely to change in the foreseeable future. So you've got these weird things. And they quote Chris Castle here. He says, consequently, we've had this lopsided arrangement between publishing and sound recordings for a long time because sound recordings can set their own prices. He's as as what, what Chris says, who dates the split to a 1909 law governing player piano rolls. So that kind of, it's like, yes, we're stuck talking about this stuff that dates back to the old player pianos and those rolls you would buy that had music on them. So your player piano, that was sort of the stereo of the day, you know? So it's, yeah. it's remarkable that we're having these discussions and it really goes back to these goofy kind of 19, early 1900s sure. business practices. Oh, right. And even the price of subscription, which we're going to cover here in a second, it, look, the industry is, almost healthier than it's ever been. It's more, as we've pointed out before, it's you know $15 billion. It's more revenue than ever. But if you adjust for inflation, it's not quite at, at that peak 1999 yet. Um, but you know, at the time of Spotify's US launch, that was in 2011, 
the U.S. recorded music industry had seen its value cut in half. Yep. If you're looking at it, you know, versus the previous decade, right? Just cut in half, and that was because of illegal downloading. You know, CD sales were dropping, and so then streaming comes along. And although those royalties were a pittance compared to the bounty, you know, from physical CDs. The pricing model changed from around $18 for an album to $10 a month for many millions of many millions of songs. It was a vast improvement over nothing, um, and it helped that free fall, you know, kind of stop uh, immediately. So fast forward to this last year, you know, like I said, recorded uh, music revenues, $15 billion. And then, of course, Goldman Sachs, you know, their annual Music in the Air report uh, last month forecasts that boom uh, to continue. And I would just encourage our listeners to check out the media uh, forecast mm -hmm. from Mark Mulligan. I think those are maybe uh, a bit more uh, accurate um, as we talked about a little bit with, uh, with Will Page. So, you know, despite the industry's revival, um, the U.S. subscription price, which was set at $9.99 a month at the dawn of the streaming age more than 20 years ago to mirror the cost of a blockbuster video <laughs> rental subscription. Remember Will Page told us about Absolutely. that? Absolutely. You know, so it's it's complicated. You know, the, the CRB, you know, they acknowledge that songwriters deserve a greater share, you know, in that last ruling, that CRB three. So it's going to 15.1 percent. And we've talked about that a lot up from 11.4 percent uh, the previous period. And again, um, that was challenged by the uh, by the DSPs. Um, and now we're rolling into the next five years. Right. Yes. We're going to have it starts uh, in September, which is, you know, less than two months away. And here we go again. Yeah. And it's going to be ugly. And, you know, I think at least for the last round, I was kind of surprised. It, it seemed like it was everybody was really far apart. And then it kind of at the, at the 11th hour, it seems like it kind of came together. And then we got a ruling. I, I, I just I, I can't my crystal ball is very foggy and hazy on this next one. I don't see how I mean, it just seems like they everyone is so far apart. I, I don't see how it's going to going to be resolved. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a lot more contentious, I think, now than it's been in the past. And, you know, we we've uh, followed uh, David Israelite. You know, he's the president of the NMPA. And in this piece, you know, they, they talk about some quote unquote aggressive tactics and verbiage, you know, that were on full display at the uh, at their annual meeting in June. Um, he portrayed the CRB battle as unambiguous uh, as, as you can possibly imagine, characterizing it as, you know, songwriters and publishers fighting for fair rates for songs that make these digital services possible. And I don't think anybody would really argue that, you know, we've heard this a lot that the people who are writing the songs are making the least amount of money in this ecosystem. And we wouldn't have this business, you know, if it wasn't for them, you know, it's like this, now we've got this David versus Goliath thing, you know, and it's, it's multi-billion dollar corporations. And, um, you know, the NMPA has described the, you know, the DSP's appeal as suing songwriters. Yikes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and, you know, it, it's, and, and there's a, a piece in there where, where they mention that, you know, again, we're talking and we talked about this with Will Page, which is, you know, it's still 10 bucks a month and nobody wants to nobody wants to step forward and, and it'll be the first Netflix has no problem raising their rates. They are 
it doesn't nobody over there you know blinks and and does they just do it and right. and it's it's I, I that to me is one of the most frustrating things in all of this is that yeah but the difference is Netflix they have things that Hulu doesn't have and vice versa Apple and Amazon and Deezer and Spotify, they basically have the same thing. Correct. So if true. somebody does step out and say, you know what, I'm going for twelve ninety nine, uh, you might you may have your playlist built up in there and you're like, eh, you know, it's worth it. It certainly is. Um or you may go, you know what? I'm just going to jump over this one that's cheaper and rebuild my playlist. So it's a, you're comparing to, you know, apples to oranges a little bit there. But you're absolutely right. In that video streaming world, that people have just rode along with it when they've had these price increases. Right, and everything has gone up so dramatically. I I just think that I don't think Ugh. I think the market can easily. I don't think there'll be a giant of, of especially if you if you're Spotify and you say, listen, we want to. We're going to raise our rates two bucks a month. It's going to go up to eleven ninety nine or whatever you know, whatever the number is. Um, but if you say and then you and then, but at the same time you do that and then and then agree to uh, to 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 stop arguing about this. I mean, you you could you could flip it on a, from a marketing standpoint and and be the good guys, right? If you if you want to take that advantage. But as as the article ends, is is the outcome will depend on how reasonable all parties can be. One top music executive says we yes. all have an aligned interest in bringing as much music as possible to as many people as possible. So how do we grow the music market in the face of competition from other forms of entertainment that cost less? Social media, gaming, online TV. How do we put more focus on the value of music, the executive concludes. That's what we need to be talking about. And then I would add to that, and let's and let's not make the songwriters the 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 stepchildren in this entire process you know it's just so frustrating because there would be no business without songwriters amen yeah exactly all right so great piece by jim uh over there at variety and great yeah. coverage as always by variety and uh great article and it's boy oh boy oh boy i i i wish i were more optimistic than i am sitting here right right today well i'm optimistic only because this was kept in the shadows for years and years. And just in the last two to three years, you know, we started uh, reading about it and digging into it. And now it's it's on everybody's minds and everybody's talking about it. And I do think uh, these these processes, these things have been around for so long. It's time. And I think people are realizing that it's just a matter of how do we slice up that pie equitably. And I, I think most people would agree that uh, songwriters deserve uh, a pay raise. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's jump over to our next uh, our next article, Jay, with with Bob Lefsetz, and we have. Yeah, we don't really we don't talk too much about we don't talk too much about uh, Bob Lefsetz, um, but you know everybody in the industry reads his uh, his newsletter. Um, he's uh, <laughs> never short of an opinion. I don't always agree with him, but I think he's always very thoughtful and articulate and some of his podcasts you know um, oh they're great his interview with donald passman was amazing his interview with irving yes. azoff i thought was just awesome um but i did want to touch on uh we i don't think we've ever done this before but i want to pull up his newsletter from last week um because it ties in beautifully to what we just covered you know about the crb and the cma and all of that but it talks about the um the value 
of playlists and how people stress, you know, I always say a playlist is not a marketing plan, but we hear it a lot. And I really enjoyed this because what Bob did is one of the things he did was he um, kind of highlighted this story in Music Ally. Mm -hmm. And the headline was, what's driving streams on Spotify, YouTube Music, Apple Music, and Amazon Music? And they, he, they put in a table in here and showed where the plays were coming from. And it was surprising to a lot of people that it wasn't really those algorithmic or uh, Spotify pu uh, curated playlists that these streams came from other, other areas. So what he's saying here, if you study that table, you'll learn the power of playlists is way overstating. Yes, all the bitching is how you can't get on playlists. The bottom line this is according to Bob, the bottom line on Spotify, the biggest streaming service and with the mo most active uh, customers, meaning they stream the most music, 50 to 60% of listening is done via user curated playlists. That's, that's huge, right? What that means, well, you know what it means. You build your own playlist, you listen to it as opposed to the ones, you know, served up by Spotify. So, uh, I just thought that was really interesting. And also that 10 to 20% of listening on Spotify is not from a playlist. And I, that's, I would say a majority of mine is I'm going in there. I read about something or somebody told me about something or you told me about something. And then I go on there and I search for it and I listen to it, whether it's on Apple music or, you know, whatever the DSP is. Yeah. And by the way, as we mentioned, this is, this is basically UK streams. And this was, this was done uh, as part of that whole thing that was happening in the UK. But the number again, that jumped, jumped out at me is if you look at Spotify, user curated playlists, 50 to 60%. I mean, that's, that's dramatic. And when you look at the, the as they say, the algatorial, uh, only 10 to 20% on Spotify. Well, let me explain different. for those that don't know what algatorial yeah. is. You know, it's, a, it's a, an amalgamation of, you know, editorial and algorithmic, mm -hmm. but it's really not that. What it is, is what they call personalized playlists. And that's where if you see, let's say, one of your artists is in a playlist, it'll say personalized by it, like in Spotify for artists, meaning that the version that I'm looking at, um, that may be that track in the number one position. Right. That same playlist that you look at based on your listening habits may not be on there at all, or it may be the last one in that playlist. So that's personalized. And then the last thing I'll just note really quickly, if you want to share a playlist, let's say that you get added to a personalized playlist, go to Spotify for artists and then you can share it from within Spotify for artists and it will keep you at that spot. Let's say you're in the number one spot. So oh, interesting uh, little handy tip. Interesting. So, but because this is really your area of expertise, Jay, um, where do you sit with Bob's, Bob's analysis that it's highly, highly, highly overrated. And in fact, you know, so many people are just using their own user curated playlists. I think he's right and wrong. Okay. And I'll I'll explain, you know, it's like uh, Will Page saying, you know, give me an economist with one hand because they're always on this hand. <laughs> on the on one the hand, hand, on the other hand. So I think, I think he's spot on with a lot of what he's saying here, but the part that is not in this that's missing is getting on a, a big playlist, a popular playlist. Some of those are only for a week or two. Mm -hmm. Um, they can change the trajectory. It may not be the percentage of streams. It's the velocity and uh, the timing of that. Um, we had 
Um, Travis Tritt uh, get onto a couple of really important playlists that really helped that record. Uh, Vintage Trouble, My Whole World Stopped, was on Mellow Morning in the number one slot. Now, overall, we're that was a small percentage of the streams like uh, this table says, but I can't stress enough. It was the velocity. It happened very quickly. It helped us get on other DSPs. It helped them get noticed. It helped radio when they see things spike. So it's not just the percentage. It's also, you know, uh, the velocity and the, and the total number and the timing. Explain velocity again, because that that's, that's an interesting word to use when you're talking about playlists. Yeah, it's just think of it as like you're turning on a faucet and how much water is coming out. If it's just a trickle, that's a low velocity. You know, you're not getting uh, a ton of streams there. But sometimes you can get that thing on full blast. It may be only on full blast for a week Mm -hmm. and it may only account for a small percentage overall of your streams. But because it happened quickly, that triggers things sometimes. When people see things overperform or spike, um, that can help you with your marketing. That can help you with your radio airplay sometimes. It can help you with maybe if you're booking a, a festival and they see something that's popping. Um, it's the devil is in the details. Right. Now, he goes on in this article to say uh, the streaming music platforms are terrible about music discovery. So th- that that's a pretty that's an unambiguous opinion there. Um, well, depends who you are. You know, if you're, um, you know, a young person who's listening primarily to certain playlists and you're discovering things, I would look, I get what he's saying, but for me, that's not true Mm -hmm. for me. When I, um, I use the different DSPs differently and I have them all because of my job. And I, I realize that that's weird. Um, but let's take Spotify, for example, release radar, discover weekly are, they're amazing. I mean, I've been served up things. And it's like Will Page said when we spoke to him, it's not discovery necessarily, it's rediscovery. Mm-hmm. Like, here's that thing we know you're going to like. You probably have this album, but you haven't broken it out in a long time. And here's one of these tracks we want you to rediscover. We think you're really going to like. And for me, I can only speak for me. They work really, really well. And the other thing is some of these radio, like on Apple Music... I happen to like these British bands like uh, Oasis and Blur yeah, and some of those. Yeah. And I was listening to one of these Apple um, stations kind of based on that music. Oh, my gosh. I listened to it all day. And it was amazing. And I kept jotting down things like artists I hadn't discovered yeah. yet. So it just I guess it just depends on how you listen. I think everybody's different. He's not wrong. It can be challenging on, on these things to... Uh, discover new music, but for me, it's not. He has interesting, interesting point in here as well. He says, so if a song gets traction on TikTok, fans will go to their streaming service of choice to listen to it. The listening is done on the DSP, but the discovery is done on TikTok. Yes. 100%. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we talk about that, that it's such a big deal. It reminds me of when... Um, when streaming first kind of started, you know, like 2011, around then, um, streaming was kind of modeling some of their playlists after what was going on at radio. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's flipped. You know, the tail's wagging the dog yeah. uh, there. So it's really more about, you know, radio looking at what's happening on streaming. And you bring up TikTok. Man, we've talked about that a lot. You know, TikTok is really driving music discovery. It's driving uh, developing artists. It's it's doing a lot for the ecosystem. But some of these artists only have 15 seconds of a song when they get discovered. Some of them have never played a live show. 
you know, um, it's, it's more complicated than just music discovery. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But you know, I, I would say that, uh, that Bob is always a great read and, <laughs> He's, he's much like much like some of the people we really enjoy. He is very sassy. He's very opinionated, yes, he um, but he's a, a great writer, very well read, and very. Uh, he you can tell that he puts a lot of work into it. And so, yeah. if you're not on his list, and that was one of the first email lists I ever subscribed to. I'm trying to remember how how, how long ago it's been, but it's oh forever, forever. Yeah, there was like the Velvet Rope. There was uh, Digital Music News and uh, Left Sets and. Uh, you know, I still belong. Well, it's not the Velvet Rope, but certainly the Fu uh, list mm-hmm. is is amazing, and I, I read that all the time. But look, Bob is super smart, super experienced. If you want to hear a really great interview with a couple of uh, you know people with law degrees talking about the music business, <laughs> check out the uh, Donald Passman interview with uh, Bob Lefsetz. It's phenomenal because that version ten of that Passman book is not like the others. Um, each one is, uh, each, you know, a new edition is updated when he does them, but it's so drastic with this 10th edition um, that I highly recommend that people check it out. But they basically almost go chapter by chapter. Mm-hmm. And It's uh, a great interview. Uh, it's a great yeah, interview. It's a really great Absolutely. interview. Absolutely. Well, let's jump over to our last story, Jay, uh, from Austin Stauba. How do you pronounce his last name? I think it's Stavos. Stavos? Yeah, okay. The case against the pre-save on Spotify and Apple Music. And I'm going to guess that you might have a slightly differing opinion on this. I'm going to take a wild guess. I do. I do have a little bit different opinion, but let's let's see where we uh, find some common ground. Okay. It's, so right? it starts with saying... And, tr- oh, so go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that um, he talks about how, you know... If you think that you're going to get um, noticed by the DSPs as far as their, um, you know, their artist relations or curators or editors and get on some of their, you know, DSP curated playlists, that, you know, that's probably not going to happen. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. Um, I think it depends on what you're doing with your pre-save. And one thing he didn't touch on, which I tell clients all the time is I'll see, uh, let's say someone saying, uh, here, enter to win this guitar. All you have to do is, you know, pre-save, you know, my new album. That's a bad idea. And the reason for that is you don't want to send a bunch of people, um, to your, you know, let's say you're, you're, dropping your new music into their library on street date, and then they're not going to listen to it. They might be just entering to win that thing. Mm -hmm. And so that's never, never a good idea. I had someone at Spotify tell me once that if someone's going to pre-save your uh, album track, whatever it is, make sure they're a real fan. That's actually going to listen to it. Otherwise it's going to show up as someone who's got something that they're not really listening to. Right. I, you know, by the way, the, to me, in this article, the, the most interesting thing was he, he talked about who invented the pre-save, which I, I don't know if you knew that story. I Did you know the story? 
Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay, I did. I'll just say it briefly. But the, Go for it. Yeah, the pre-save was invented by David Emery, who was then the VP of digital marketing at AWOL. Uh, at the time, David was looking for a way through Spotify's public API to create a digital version of an iTunes pre-order for a Laura Marling release he was tasked with. During the iTunes generation, you may remember, before streaming, it was ubiquitous. Pre-orders were of great importance to the majors as it gave them the ability to project future sales and success at radio. Uh, as he said, David explained, I went for a walk and I just had all these things whirling around in my head. What is it we can do here? And it literally just came to me. We can use this API, make a thing that's like pre-ordering, but for Spotify. That would work really well and would be really quite straightforward. The functionality had been there for years in the API. You and I talked a little bit about the API before we hit record. And it makes it sound like that's an open source thing that anybody can, can go look at. And that's not exactly the case, is it? I'm, you know, I'm not sure. I know there is uh, a public API um, that uh, people can use for, for some of these DSPs. And I don't, I, I should ask our friends over at Microgroove because they understand this stuff a lot better than I do. But the bottom line is there isn't uh, a way for a D, to pre-save with a DSP yet. Um, Spotify said that they're working on something uh, for that, which I think will be really interesting. Um and it's something that this public API, and for those that don't know, the simple way is an API is just a piece of software that lets one platform communicate with another, right? So um, David explained that, you know, they came up with this API and so with Spotify and they could do the, the pre-save. And I think Apple calls it the pre-add and it's basically a pre-order. They're all the same things. You just, you know, commit to something ahead of time. Now, back when there were downloads, we called it instant grat. You know, the instant grat track, yeah. meaning instant gratification, right? Where if you buy this album today, we will instantly gratify you by giving you this one song or these two songs early. And that was what we were trying to do with streaming. Find a way uh, to get people to pre-order something, right? So, so they had it. And then hopefully on street date, they would play it more. I think that pre-saves are valid. Um, I think they're important. I think that with the the number of tracks that are released um, every day and just the sheer volume and sometimes even myself with artists that I really love, um, sometimes I'll miss that if, I, if, if I'm not careful. Mm -hmm. And I, I wish there was an easy way on all these platforms to just say, you know what? I love... Uh, the Accidentals or Josh Groban or whoever, I want you, I'm going to click a button and whenever they put out music, I want you to automatically drop it into <clears throat> this oh, playlist. Yeah. That's a good idea. That, to me, that would be, <clears throat> that would be really valuable. Uh, Austin in this article says, you know, uh, talking about this kind of the whole pre-save thing, I've always questioned the merits of the pre-save. In David's defense, the pre-save was an early innovation in 2016. It was a resounding success at the time because no one else had done it. That's why it worked. To succeed in life and in music, you must do the opposite of what everyone else is doing. David Emery did just that and made his mark on business as a result. But I think his take is it's it's not, for a variety of reasons, it's not a great idea. Um but I don't know, you know, you work with artists so much, you know, he talks about um, editors are not evaluating your record based on how many pre-saves it has. Um, asking your pre- Okay. As you, you, right. Right. Uh -huh. that, that's true. 
Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not valuable. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. And, and why I say that is because by, you know, out of sight, out of mind, even though the editors, curators may not be judging you on that. Um, certainly if you get more spins by having that there, that is a positive thing. He talks about the Spotify algorithm a little bit, and we've done a little bit of research on the Spotify algorithm. And, and he talks about some basic things like, you know, spins are good. Skips are bad, adds to personal libraries and playlists. That's good. You know, um, you can, you, you can also add to that, you know, that probably optimizing your artist page and I'm just talking about Spotify right now and maybe adding a canvas video, you know, those kinds of things are good, but here's some things that Spotify says is in their algorithm. And again, this isn't Mike's opinion. This isn't Jay's opinion. This is what they've said, you know, publicly, mm -hmm. um, at, uh, conferences or on their website. And I just want to read off a few of these. So besides what I, I just mentioned, you know, um, when they're looking for what they're going to drop into those, um, you know, personalized kind of playlists, especially things like release radar, discover weekly, here are a few things that they look at. And again, this is from them songs you have on repeat mm -hmm. listening habits of people with similar tastes, artist input, Right. That's, you know, Spotify for artists, making sure your artist profile is in good shape. Uh, the music elements of the track, um, uh, similarity to other artists you listen to, genres you listen to, song length. I thought that was important. And then the languages uh, you listen to. So I'm, I'm not a big believer uh, in um, discounting pre-saves. I understand the, the premise of this piece is that, well, why do a pre-save if the editor curators aren't going to use that as your scorecard? Right. They may not use that, but they certainly will, you know, or at least the algorithm will see, you know, if you're getting a lot of plays, which would come uh, hopefully from that, uh, that pre-save thing. And the last thing I'll say just really quickly is that our, our good friend Mike Warner had captured this video of uh, this test on Florence and the Machines uh, Dance Fever release, you know, and that featured a trackless preview and a countdown clock. And, you know, they're, I guess what I'm saying is they're, they're toying with the idea of testing pre-saves directly uh, in the app. And, I think that's long overdue. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great. Again, great piece to to have the conversation about, you know, and, and I know you have this conversation with artists all the time. And if you didn't mention it, you know, that's you have cataloged those comments that Spotify has made over the years. And that's super important. The value you bring to artists you work with is that you pay attention to that stuff. And that is super important and very uh, we, we reap the benefit of your fastidious study habits, oh, Jay. Please. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, we must wrap up episode 103. My goodness, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for everyone for listening in. And of course, we must thank our sponsors, including Banzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. And don't forget, don't forget to subscribe to us if you'd be so kind and maybe tell a friend. Just one thank friend. Thank you so much. That's what we do. Yeah. yeah. Because we enjoy it and we appreciate everyone listening in. So on behalf of my good friend, the dapper Jay Gilbert, I say thank you and thanks for joining us this week and we will see you next time on the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. 
Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know. <laughs>